You're listening to The Firsts, The Forerunners of Islam, the series that visits those distinguished as leaders of humanity, not only in history, but in the ranks of the next world. Dive into the stories of the giants who were the first of their kind as they rose to the occasion and became preserved inspirations for generations to come. With your host, Sheikh Dr. Omar Suleiman, let's meet the firsts. Allow us to maintain the thrust and the steam uh, of what we gain and go into the Hijjah strong as well. Allahumma ameen. And we continue inshallah ta'ala tonight and over the next two weeks with some of the wives of the Prophet And I want to remind everyone that we covered a bulk of the wives of the Prophet in season one in the first episodes because we talked about those women that embraced Islam early on. So we didn't cover all of the wives of the Prophet Sallallahu in order, but we're now looking at them chronologically as it relates to their time coming into the picture uh, when we look at the seerah of the Prophet Sallallahu And the next two stories that we have are actually very similar in regards to how our mothers that we will be covering tonight and next week came into the life of the Prophet Sallallahu And I want to remind everyone that every single marriage of the Prophet ﷺ has a special divine wisdom to it. And in fact, more than one wisdom. Some of those wisdoms, subhanAllah, you can decipher very easily, as will be the case with the two that we're going to be covering, inshaAllah ta'ala. And what was very common in the time of the Prophet ﷺ, that one of the ways that you reconcile between two tribes is that the king of one tribe would marry a noble woman from another tribe. Okay, so a noble person, especially when there was a hostility and there was a method of reconciliation, you can find this practically amongst all of the interactions of the Arabs, that the leader of one people will marry someone prominent from the other people and that will essentially end the hostilities between them. And subhanAllah, there are three such marriages that we find from the life of the Prophet ﷺ. One of them we already covered. So there's a genre that represents three women from our mothers. May Allah be pleased with them all. One of them we already covered, and she was the daughter of the most hostile person to the Prophet ﷺ in Mecca when the Prophet ﷺ returned to Mecca. Who was the enemy of the Prophet ﷺ that was still left when the Prophet ﷺ came back to Mecca from Quraysh? Abu Sufyan, right? Who, of course, would become Muslim at the very, very last moments, I mean, it took him to the Fath, right? To the very last moments of the conquest of Mecca, Abu Sufyan was still plotting a way to overthrow the Prophet ﷺ. The Prophet ﷺ married his daughter, what was her name? Anyone know her name? Ramla, what's her, what is she more commonly known as? Um Habiba, radiallahu ta'ala anha. Um Habiba was one of the early Muslims, she went to Abyssinia, and the Prophet ﷺ married her and, of course, was not united with her until much later in the seerah. So her marriage was conducted 
in Abyssinia. She joins the Prophet much later on. And subhanAllah, look at the logic of the Arabs. Abu Sufyan is trying to kill the Prophet But when he got the news that the Prophet had conducted the nikah with Umm Habiba, he was ecstatic. He said, that's a great match. <laughs> Why? Because the Prophet is a noble person and these people worship lineage. And that softened the heart of Abu Sufyan to the Prophet So he reconciles through that marriage, even though it's years later, it brings the hostilities of Quraysh down a bit, right? That the Prophet marries the daughter of Abu Sufyan. And then you have the woman that we will be covering today, Ta'ala, and we will see the barakah, the blessing that came from the Prophet's marriage to her. She comes from a people that were hostile to the Prophet that were between Mecca and Medina. So you have the enemies in Mecca, and then you have Banin Mustaliq, who we're going to talk about tonight, who are a little removed from Mecca, between Mecca and Medina. And then in Medina, you have the Jewish tribes that were not happy that the Prophet was not from amongst them. And the Prophet is going to marry Safiya bin Anha. And we'll talk about Safiya Anha next week. So subhanAllah, the three main contingents that you have here, the Prophet will marry from them and that will be a part of you know, reducing the hostilities. And in the case of Juwayriya as we're going to see an amazing blessing that comes out of the Prophet marriage to her. So tonight, inshallah ta'ala, we're going to take a step back and I want you to appreciate this dimension of the seerah bidnillahi ta'ala. The woman that we'll be talking about is Barwa bint al-Harith ibn Dinar, whose name was changed to Juwayriya bint al-Harith ibn Dirar radiallahu ta'ala anha. She comes from the tribe of Bani al-Mustaliq. Bani al-Mustaliq. Bani al-Mustaliq is a tribe of Khuza'a in Mecca, a very prominent tribe that's related to Quraysh, but they live outside of Mecca. They're a powerful tribe that live outside of Mecca, but have relations with Quraysh because they're from Banu Khuza'a. And Juwayriya is the daughter of the chief of Bani al-Mustaliq. So she's technically a princess, the Amira of her qawm. I was actually going to put that in the title, but then I said people will object, so we didn't use the word princess because princess has certain connotations, but that's literally what she is. She is the daughter of the leader of the tribe, uh, Al-Harith ibn Dirar, a very powerful man that resides outside of Mecca. And this is where you find the famous incident in the seerah known as Ghazwatu Ban al-Mustalaq, the battle of Ban al-Mustalaq. And you can look at it by two names. It's called Ghazwat al-Muraisir or Ghazwat Ban al-Mustalaq. Now I'm actually going to put up a picture inshallah ta'ala. Al-Muraisir is the body of water that exists next to Ban al-Mustalaq. So if you look there, it's in Arabic, obviously in green, you have Mecca at the bottom and you have Medina at the top. You can see where Muraisir, which was their most prominent body of water is located. It's literally right in between, a little closer to Mecca, okay? So Muraisir is the location. Ban al-Mustalaq is the name of the people. Ban al-Mustalaq is the powerful tribe that resides around Muraisir, allied to Quraysh, and they have the famous idol of Al-Manat. Okay, so some Quranic connection to it as well. Now, because this group of people were not Muslim and they were allied to Quraysh by blood and they were considered a powerful tribe, they joined Quraysh in their hostility towards the Prophet when he made the Hijrah to Medina. So they kind of, Ben al-Mustaliq stayed out of internal Mecca politics during the first period of Islam. 
But once the Prophet وسلم, and the companions made hijrah, they joined Quraysh. And the historians say because they had an interest in the caravans still being able to pass through their area. Because once the Prophet وسلم, and the Muslims were expelled or were put in that situation where they moved to Al Medina, what did they start to do? They started to intercept, the Muslims started to intercept the caravans that were coming to Mecca. That's a political strategy, right? Their stuff was stolen and they're intercepting the caravans. And so Ben al-Mustaliq has an interest in allying itself with Quraysh to make sure that economically they're still well off. You see politics existed back then too. So all these states are thinking about economy. That's what they're thinking about as well. The caravans pass through here. It's in our benefit to be allied to them. So what happens is, when the Battle of Uhudhab comes forth, Ben al-Mustaliq actually supports Quraysh in the Battle of Uhud. So they bolster their army and they send some reinforcements to fight against the Muslims in Medina, even though they're not a direct party to this conflict up until now. After Uhud, Ben al-Mustaliq decides to launch a surprise attack on the Muslims. So they're being instigated by Quraysh, and basically the logic is this, the Muslims will not expect an attack from you. You don't have any hostilities between you and the Muslims, right? Quraysh has hostilities to Muhammad Wasallam and his followers in Medina. You don't have those hostilities, surprise them with an attack. You'll get amazing spoils of war. You'll take all of their goods in Medina. You can enslave their entire population. This is a golden opportunity for you. And the Prophet Wasallam is not a ruthless person. The Prophet ﷺ will not attack people preemptively in an unjust way. Rasulullah ﷺ, they thought, could be taken advantage of in this regard. So the Prophet ﷺ receives some knowledge of this, that there is a plot to attack the Muslims coming from Muraysir, the location, or Ben al-Mustaliq. And this takes place, according to Ibn Hajar rahimullah and Imam al-Dhahabi, the fifth year after Hijrah in Sha'ban. So it's right before Ramadan, fifth year after Hijrah in Sha'ban. And some of the historians say it was the sixth year after Hijrah. Allah knows best, but Ibn Hajar rahimahullah makes a strong case that's five years after Hijrah. So it's pretty close to Uhud, right? And they're starting to make their plans. So when the Prophet ﷺ hears the news or he has whatever comes to him of news that they're plotting this attack, the Prophet ﷺ seeks a means of verifying it. Now, subhanAllah, uh, sometimes these characters come up in these stories and you can't just glance over the name. You have to actually look at the person as well. The Prophet ﷺ sends a man by the name of Buraida ibn al-Husayb. I want you to remember this name, inshaAllah ta'ala, if you can. You know, I actually wanted to do a short bio on this person, this companion at one point. Very interesting man. Buraida ibn al-Husayb. Buraida ibn al-Husayb is a Bedouin man who was literally living in the middle of nowhere. And when the Prophet ﷺ was making hijrah, on the way to Al-Madinah, the Prophet ﷺ saw this man shepherding some sheep and his people, literally in tents, in the middle of nowhere. They're Bedouins that live in the harshest climate, away from Medina, away from Mecca. And the Prophet ﷺ never stops giving da'wah. So even in the Hijrah, when the Prophet ﷺ is fleeing for his life, the Prophet ﷺ comes across Buraida, radiallahu ta'ala anhu, Buraida ibn al-Husayb in the Hijrah, 
And Buraida is a simple man. The Prophet ﷺ, you know, comes to him and he's courteous with the Prophet ﷺ as he would be with the travelers. And Rasulullah ﷺ says, Halaka fil Islam. Have you heard about Islam? And Buraida, you know, he hasn't heard over this past decade what's happening in Mecca. He has no idea what Islam is. So he says, No, what's Islam? So the Prophet ﷺ tells Buraida radiallahu ta'ala anhu what Islam is, and you can tell already that he's a companion, so you know where the story is going. And Buraida says that makes perfect sense. He goes and he calls 30 to 70 of his people and they embrace Islam together and they pray Isha with the Prophet ﷺ in the Hijrah. SubhanAllah. So in the Hijrah, Buraida and his qawm and his people that are living on the way became Muslim and they kind of went back to their Bedouin life. They live in the desert and they live in this harsh climate and this is how they live, but now they're Muslims. So they're praying and they're maintaining their Islam. Why is this important? Rasulullah says to Buraida, he said, I want you to go to Ben al-Mustalaq and I want you to pretend like you're a mercenary, you're a Bedouin who's interested in joining the battle against the Muslims. So confirm that there's actually a plot to attack the Muslims. You see, he kind of fits the look. He's not known to the people of Mecca. He's not known to Ben al-Mustalaq. He's not known to any of the city populations. So Buraida goes to Ben al-Mustalaq as a spy essentially. And he goes up to Al-Harith and he says that I'm a man who wants to participate. I heard that you're thinking about attacking the Muslims. I have some skill in the battle and I want to participate so I can get a share of the spoils. So Al-Harith ibn al-Dirar confirms to him that yes, we're plotting at this time and this time and this time and you can join our army basically and you'll have a share of the spoils. So he fits the look, right? He's a Bedouin man in the middle of nowhere. He fits the look. He goes back to the Prophet wasallam. And he tells the Prophet ﷺ that indeed Benin Mustalaq is planning to attack. This shows you, by the way, justice already on the part of the Prophet ﷺ. He didn't attack a people based on a rumor. Rasulullah ﷺ confirmed that they were indeed planning to attack. Then the Prophet ﷺ makes a plan to preemptively attack them to stop them from carrying out their plans. And so the Prophet ﷺ makes his way with the companions to Muraysir, to the area of Ben al-Mustalaq. Now a lot happens on this trip. This is like one of the most momentous and underrated chapters of the seerah. Rasulullah puts Zayd ibn al-Haritha in charge of al-Madinah. Remember we talked about the special rank of Zayd and that Aisha said that the Prophet never sent out an army except he put Zayd in charge and that he would have, if he was alive, he would have put him in charge of the Ummah. So this is one confirmation of that, or one of the specialties of Zayd ibn al-Haritha So he's in charge of Medina, and this is different from Badr and Uhud, because the Prophet himself is going to leave with the army. All right, and we're leaving Medina, we're leaving the vicinity of Medina. The Prophet marches with a group of companions towards Muraysir, and he puts Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala anhu, with the banner of the Muhajireen, again another sign. So Abu Bakr carries عنه, the banner of the Muhajireen, and Sa'd ibn Ubadah عنه, carries the banner of the Ansar. So the Prophet leaves with this army towards Muraysir, towards Ben al Mustalaq, with Abu Bakr in charge of the Muhajireen, Sa'd ibn Ubadah in charge of the Ansar, Zayd ibn al Haritha will be in charge of Al Madinah. Now, who else? was anxious to go out with the Prophet and his companions in this battle. The munafiqeen, the hypocrites. 
Now, you might think to yourself, why? Abdullah ibn Ubay bin Salul, all of these people who turned back in Uhud and who made every excuse in the world to not go out in Tabuk, right? And Allah condemns them for that. But when they heard about the Prophet going to Ben al-Mustaliq, they all joined the party. Why? Can anyone tell me why? What is it? Sorry. They want to join Ben al-Mustaliq. That's a good guess, but not exactly. Yeah. What's that? The potential for the spoils. Now, the potential for the riches of Ben al-Mustaliq. Why? Because this is an easy win. We're going to go out there. We're going to catch them unsuspecting. And so we get to go out with the Prophet ﷺ. He's going to seize them, put them under siege before they have a chance to attack. This is an easy win. So we'll get to go out and we'll get to take all of the spoils of battle. That's how the munafiqeen think, the hypocrites think. So they made all of these plots to get out of Uhud they, you know, and Badr. But now Abdullah ibn Ubay bin Salul and the hypocrites are like, yeah, let's go with them. So the munafiqun heavily infiltrated this Muslim army that go to Muraysir. Easy win, easy spoils, lots of wealth, and we can claim to be marching alongside the Prophet The Prophet lays siege to Muraysir, and this is how the Prophet does so. He has the archers literally rain down arrows upon them while they were unsuspecting, so they weren't expecting. Instead of going in and slicing people up, the Prophet has the archers rain down arrows upon them. They go into their homes and for about an hour, the Prophet maintained a consistent attack of arrows until they surrendered. Okay? What came about this? Very few casualties. Less than 10 casualties from the men, all from the men. And there was only one Muslim casualty. So from the other side, seven to 10 people, seven to 10 of the men die. From the Prophet's side, uh, one of the Ansar was mistakenly hit by one of the arrows. Okay? So one of the Ansar was mistakenly hit by one of the arrows. And you have a bunch of spoils. This was a wealthy nomadic tribe, a bunch of you know wealth. Uh, camels, goats, and everything, right? Coming forth. And the Prophet ﷺ essentially secures this victory. Now, a lot happens here. Number one, Manat was destroyed. So one of the key idols in the Arabian Peninsula was destroyed. Number two, Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Sarul saw an opening to pit the Muhajirin and the Ansar against each other when, he, when, when the Ansar were helping the Muhajirin and the Prophet, and, and he said, the f- very famous statement, first he said, min kalbak yakulak. Fatten your dog and it will eat you. Who was he speaking about? He was making these types of comments. So Abdullah ibn Ubay bin Salul, the chief of the hypocrites in Medina, he's telling the Ansar, fatten up your dog and it will eat you. Look at these muhajireen. They're taking advantage of you once again. Why are you supporting them? Why are you helping them? min kalbak yakulak. And he says, Ama innahu wallahi la'in ila al-Madina. He said, when we go back to Medina, the noble man will displace the humiliated man. Who is he speaking about? Himself overthrowing the Prophet So Abdullah ibn Ubay bin Salul plots a coup while they're out of Medina because this is not like Uhud. They're not just on the outskirts of Medina. They're far away from Medina. Ibn Ubay bin Salul sees an opening for a coup to overthrow the Prophet and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala foils their plans. So Allah reveals Qur'an exposing the words of Abdullah ibn Ubay bin Salul to 
his followers, and that plan is foiled. Another thing that happens on Ghazwat bin al-Mustalaq is this is where the slander of Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha took place. So remember, the man needs a diversion tactic, right? He's been exposed. Everyone now knows he's a hypocrite. So what does he do? He instigates the slander of Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha, our mother Aisha, which will essentially distract from everything regarding him and take all of the attention to the gossip of the day because people love drama. People love fitna. So instead of the guy that literally was trying to plot a coup in Medina from the inside and has been exposed for his hypocrisy, you now have the talk of the town about our mother Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha and a scandal in the Prophet's home sallallahu alayhi wa So this is where the slander of Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha took place. This is also where the loss of her necklace, the, the famous story with our mother Aisha radiallahu anha, the loss of her necklace where the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa stops the whole army on the way back to find her necklace and Allah reveals the verses of Tayammum, this is where it happens in Ghazwat bin al-Mustalaq. So they get back, you're like, where does Juwaidiyah come in? I promise we'll get to her inshallah ta'ala. They get back to Medina, and the spoils of war, 2,000 camels, 600 goats, 100 families that are amongst the captives, it's a big deal what has happened here, right? This is unlike Badr, unlike Uhud, it's a first for the Muslims in Medina. Juwairiyah, whose name at that time was Barra, Barra, she's the daughter of the chief, and her husband was one of the casualties. So her husband's name was Musafir ibn Safwan. Musafir ibn Safwan. Musafir ibn Safwan was one of the casualties, and her father, who's the chief of Ben al-Mustaliq, escaped. So she is the most royal of the captives that are brought back to Al-Madina. Juwairiyah radiallahu ta'ala anha, she says that three days before the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam came to Ben al-Mustalaq, I told my people that I saw a dream of the moon rising over Muraysiyah. So she actually saw, subhanAllah, a dream of the moon, and we know that from the incidents of the marriage of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa that this was a sign of the Prophet sallallahu about to marry a person, right? The moon rises above Muraysiyah, and she did not know how to interpret it before the battle happened. So her father escaped. Her husband was one of the casualties. And she is taken captive by Thabit ibn Qais. Thabit ibn Qais radiallahu ta'ala anhu, who is one of the companions. Uh, he's the famous man who raised his voice in Surah Al-Hujrat. Okay, Thabit ibn Qais. Now, there's something in Islam called Al-Mukataba which is ransom. Basically, when a person is taken captive, they can request to be freed and the, the person gives a reasonable timeline as well as a reasonable price and ba they basically free themselves from captivity. So she demands Munkataba from Thabit ibn Qais right away. She basically invokes the contract. The contract is that she'll be freed for seven uqiyas of silver and you know that's something that she can earn on her own. She can, she can find a way or one of her people can ransom her, right? But there's a way out for her from captivity. So she has her way out of captivity and Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha takes the story from here. Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha narrates and this is a long hadith. She said, So she says that when Ben al-Mustalaq 
uh, was defeated, the captives were distributed and one, and basically Juwayriya radiallahu ta'ala anha was a captive to, to Thabit ibn Qais or to one of his cousins. وَكَاتَبَتُهُ And she invoked a form of ransom for herself, basically a contract to free herself from captivity عَلَى نَفْسِهَا وَكَانَتْ مْرَأَةً حُلْوَةً مُلَاحَةً لَا يَرَاهَا أَحَدٌ إِلَّا أَخَذَتْ بِنَفْسِهِ She says, Juwayriya was a beautiful woman. She was an elegant woman. Like it was clear that she was someone special. No one saw Juwayriya radiallahu ta'ala anha and thought she was a normal woman. She was clearly a person of royalty, a person of dignity, a person of great beauty, a person of great eloquence. As soon as, as, soon as she spoke, she captivated you and she had something special about her, right? So this is a tough journey for Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha. The slander has started. She doesn't know about it yet. She says, فَوَاللَّهِ مَا هُوَ إِلَّا أَنْ رَأَيْتُهَا عَلَى بَابِ حُجْرَتِي She said, next thing I know, she knocks on the door of my house. We get back to Medina from Ben al-Mustalaq and a knock on the door. And she said, and it was Juwayriya, Aisha radiallahu anha answers the door. And what does Aisha say? فَكَرِهْتُهَا I hated her. Right away. I looked at her and I hated her guts. <laughs> Our mother Aisha is a very honest woman radiallahu ta'ala anha. Like, why are you here? What do you want? Right? فَكَرِهْتُهَا Right away her jealousy uh, got the best of her. And she said that, you know, I immediately felt a certain way about her. And that's how Aisha radiallahu anha is. She verbalizes her feelings. So she said, first impression, horrible. I don't like you. Right? And she says, so she said to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Ya Rasulullah, ana juwariyat bint al-harith, ibni abi dirar, sayyidi qawmihi, that I am juwariyat bint al-harith, the daughter of uh, Al-Harith ibn Abi Dirar, who was the leader of his people, وَقَدْ أَصَابَنِي مِنَ الْبَلَاءِ مَا لَمْ يَخْفَى عَلَيْكَ And I've been struck with this tragedy that you're well aware of. فَوَقَعْتُ فِي السَّهْمِ لِثَابِتِ بْنِ قَيْسِ بْنِ الشَّمَّاسِ And so I ended up in the possession of Thabit ibn Qais. فَكَاتَبْتُهُ عَلَى نَفْسِي And I invoked the contract uh, with him to free myself from ca captivity. So I came to you astainuka ala kitabati. I came to you so that you can pay my ransom. Basically, you know who I am. I'm a person of royalty and I'm coming to you so you can pay my ransom. Now, the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam could do multiple things. He could pay it and he could let her go and that's the end of that. Right? And the Prophet sallallahu was willing to do that. Those that want to attack Islam conveniently leave out the fact that if the Prophet ﷺ wanted to, by all of the rules of war back then, the Prophet ﷺ could have taken her as a captive, right? By all of the rules of engagement that exist at the time. The Prophet ﷺ says to her, فَهَلْ لَكِ فِي خَيْرٍ مِنْ ذَلِكَ Remember, everything the Prophet ﷺ does is out of divine wisdom. He says, how about something even better than that? And she said, what is that? The Prophet ﷺ said, if you want, so I could ransom you, I could pay off your ransom and you could go free, or I could marry you. So she said, Naam ya Rasulullah, uh, I want to marry you, O Messenger of Allah. So the Prophet ﷺ conducts the marriage. Now what happens as a result of that? Aisha radiallahu anha is still narrating this as it's taking place. فَخَرَجَ الْخَبَرُ إِلَى النَّاسِ أَنَّ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ تَزَوَّجَ جُوَيْرِيَةِ بِنْتِ الْحَارِثِ so the news got out that the Prophet ﷺ was going to marry Juwayriya bint al-Harith from Ben al-Mustalaq, the daughter of the chief. So what did the people say? 
the people immediately said, Asharu Rasulillahi sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Wait a minute, you mean we have the in-laws of the Prophet as captives? So they let all of their captives go because they said, how can we have the in-laws of the Prophet as captives? Even if they were hostile to us, even if they were planned to be attacked, how can we keep the in-laws of Rasulullah as captives? So everybody freed their captives. So Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha said the famous statement she said, she said, so I don't know of a single woman that was a greater blessing to her people than Juwayriya anha to her people. All of her people were freed because of her. So over a hundred of the captives and their families were let go free and they were given back their stuff. And basically in Medina, there is peace now between the Muslims and Banil Mustalik. And many of them embrace Islam because of what they just saw of the generosity, the gesture of the Prophet wasallam. Now the story continues and the plot thickens. It gets actually very interesting. Al-Harith ibn Dirar, ibn Abi Dirar, her father, he doesn't know what's happening. He escaped Medina and he's thinking to himself, how can I go free my daughter? So Al-Harith ibn Abi Dirar, he basically gathers everything that he has left, all of his hidden possessions, all of his camels, all of his goats, all of his wealth. And he makes his way to Medina to free his daughter from captivity. So. While he's coming towards Al-Madinah, he enters into what's known as Wadi Al-Aqiq, the Valley of Al-Aqiq. This is a blessed valley on the outskirts of Medina. The Prophet ﷺ prayed in this valley, a very famous Al-Wadi Al-Mubarak, a blessed valley, Wadi Al-Aqiq. فَنَظَرَ إِلَى الْإِبِلْ He looked towards his camels. فَرَغَبَ فِي بَعِيرَيْنِ مِنْهَا And he saw two of them and he loved them. So he looked at two of his camels and he was like, but these are really special. So he basically hid those two camels in a particular place in Aqiq and then he made his way towards the Prophet ﷺ with everything else. So he comes to the Prophet ﷺ not knowing that the Prophet ﷺ married his daughter. And he enters upon the Prophet ﷺ and he says, Listen, Ya Muhammad, asabtum ibnati wa hada fida'uha. He said, Oh Muhammad, you've captured my daughter. Here is her ransom. And he presents all of the stuff to the Prophet ﷺ. So the Prophet ﷺ smiles at him and he says, Where are the two camels that you hid in the valley? So he lo- and, and he says, The Prophet ﷺ describes the exact location. I know exactly where you hid those two camels. So Al Harith says, Ashhadu an la ilaha illallah wa ashhadu anna Muhammad Rasulullah. He took shahada in that moment. No more words needed. He said, He said, I swear, no one knew about what I did except for Allah. No one knew where I hid those camels except Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I bear witness that there is one God and that you are the messenger of Allah. And then the Prophet informs him that he actually has married his daughter. He's overjoyed. He embraces Islam. His two sons that were with him also embraced Islam. So the brothers of Juwayriya also embraced Islam. And basically this solidifies the Islam of all of Ben al-Mustalaq. So subhanAllah, this people that were planting a surprise attack on Medina were now preemptively attacked, brought to Medina, but the princess is married. They all become Muslim and they see the generosity of the Muslims. And now they're allies to the people of Medina. In fact, part of the people of Medina 
against Quraysh and the people of Mecca. And subhanAllah, in fact, one of the brothers of Juwayriya, uh, Amr ibn al-Harith, becomes a hadith narrator. So this is the story of how the Prophet Sallallahu marries this woman and how she becomes the greatest blessing to her people as Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha said that any woman had ever been to her people. Now, as I said, her name was uh, Barra, which means free of all sin, free of all sin. And you find in the books of Hadith, Bab Istihbab, Taghir al-Ism, Al-Qabih ila Hasanin wa Taghiri ismi, Barra ila Zainab wa Juwayriya wa Nahwihima the chapter in Sahih Muslim, and you find it in Bukhari and others, of changing the name when the Prophet chose to change the name of a person, and specifically the name Barra, because it was a common name that women had at the time, and the Prophet found it to be an exaggerated form of praise of a person, and Rasulullah instead would change their names, whether it was Umm Salama radiallahu ta'ala anha, Zainab radiallahu ta'ala anha, Maymuna radiallahu anha, their names were all changed to uh, different things from Barra, and as Ibn Abbas says that when the Prophet married Juwayriya, he changed her name to Juwayriya. The Prophet hated that it would be said that he left righteousness or he left piety because even the language, the function of the language, if the names remained Barra, would have suggested something about the Prophet that is inappropriate. Now, the thing, subhanAllah, that concerns me most about these biographies or that I love to actually look into and I think is of most benefit to us is the impact the Prophet had on a person. You can see these people coming from backgrounds of wealth, of prosperity, of prestige, and suddenly they become righteous worshipers, some of the greatest worshipers alive. And right before Ramadan, we talked about Zainab bin anha, and how Zainab anha went from being this noble, wealthy woman that had some, some level of materialism, but then after she married the Prophet what does she become known by? Her complete asceticism, her complete zuhd and her worship, to the point that she's hanging a rope in the masjid that she can lean on and continue her qiyam all night long. So a woman that becomes distinguished by her qiyam and suddenly seemingly has no love for this world whatsoever. No matter who the Prophet married, subhanAllah, no matter what background they came from, suddenly their preferences, their attachment to this world, their appetite for this life completely went away when they saw the man that the Prophet ﷺ was. And you'd find that Juwayriya is no exception to this. So Juwayriya becomes a woman who is distinguished by her fasting. She used to love fasting. And in fact, subhanAllah, every hadith about Juwayriya has something to do with her worship, by the way. So she becomes a righteous worshiper, one of the righteous worshipers uh, of the companions of the Prophet So the famous hadith uh, where we take the ruling that you can't fast Friday alone, Yawm al-Jum'ah, you cannot fast it alone without fasting a day before it or a day after it, unless there is a reason that exists before it. So for example, if it's the day of Arafah or a person fasts every other day, like the day of uh, the Siyam of Dawood the fasting of David, peace be upon him, and you fast every other day and it happens to be a Friday. Otherwise, the Prophet ﷺ prohibits a person from fasting only Friday. And we take this from Hadith, uh, from Abu Ayyub, from Juwayriya radiallahu ta'ala anha, that the Prophet ﷺ dakhala alayha yawm al-jum'ah wa hiya sa'imah, the Prophet ﷺ came to her when she was fasting on a day of Friday, 
So the Prophet said to her, Asunti Ams, did you fast yesterday? She said, No. The Prophet says, Do you plan to fast tomorrow? She said, No. The Prophet said, So in that case, you break your fast. So we take this ruling from Juwayriya, a woman who loved to voluntarily fast. We also see a zuhd, asceticism. Juwayriya would not keep possessions in her home. Anything that came into her house went out of her house very quickly. So she used to give away her food عنها, when it came into her home. SubhanAllah, a common theme that we find in the households of the Prophet This is a woman who was the daughter of one of the most powerful men in the region. And when the food would come into her home, she would immediately give it away. And in one narration, Juwayriya says, the Prophet came home and he looked around the house and there wasn't a single piece of food. So he said, Hal min ta'am? Do we have anything to eat in the home? I said to him, La wallahi ya Rasulullah, ma indana ta'amun illa azmun min shatin u'tiyatu mawlati uh, min as-sadaqa. So she says that the only thing we have in our home, subhanAllah, the home of the Prophet is a bone of a goat that was given as sadaqa by my uh, freed servants. That's all we have is a bone, is a azm that is given to us. And she said the Prophet ate whatever he could from that bone and that was it. SubhanAllah, this is again, the house of the Prophet and the house of uh, a woman who was one of the most powerful women uh, before Islam. Also the narration from Amr ibn Harith عنه, the brother of Juwayriya, that the Prophet وسلم, the very famous narration, ما ترك رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم عند موته درهما ولا دينارا ولا عبدا ولا أمة ولا شيئا إلا بغلته البيضاء وسلاحه وأرضا جعلها صدقة that when the Prophet passed away he didn't have a single dinar or dirham a male or a female servant or anything else to his name except for his white mule sallallahu alayhi wasallam and his weapon and a piece of land that he had given as charity to the wayfarers sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So this is narrated by the brother of Juwayriya who sees the poverty of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam at the time of his death and who says it as a means of praise of the messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Now what ibadah, what act of worship is she going to be distinguished by? So there's one particular act of worship that Juwayriya is going to have, that is ascribed to her, that is specific as one of her virtues. Does anyone know what it is? Of the acts of worship. Someone said it? Athkar. Her remembrance of Allah, her dhikr. SubhanAllah, you find Hafsa radiallahu anha, sawama qawama, right? Jibreel praised her. A woman who fasts and who prays at night. She prays a lot at night. Zainab radiallahu ta'ala anha, as we saw, praying at night to the point that Zainab radiallahu ta'ala anha is holding on to a rope to keep herself praying at night. Juwayriya radiallahu ta'ala anha was known to spend the entire day in the dhikr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This was a woman that loved her dhikr. This was a woman that loved her remembrance to the point that some of the mufassireen, when they, when they talk about adhakirin Allah kathiran wa those who remember Allah frequently from the men and from the women, 
they mention, like the Prophet and Jawiriya Imagine the conversations between the Prophet and her revolve around dhikr. This is a woman that stays in her dhikr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and that becomes distinguished by her dhikr. And so one of the most famous athqaq that we have, one of the most famous remembrances of Allah that we have is a gift to us from Juwayriya radiallahu ta'ala anha or from the Prophet through Juwayriya radiallahu ta'ala anha and it's a famous narration from Ibn Abbas radiallahu ta'ala anhuma an Juwayriya anna nabiya sallallahu alayhi wa sallam kharaja min indiha bukratan hina salla subha wa hiya fi masjidiha thumma raja'a ba'da an adha the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam left Juwayriya radiallahu ta'ala anha in the early morning to make his way towards Salatul Fajr. And she was worshiping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala fi masjidiha. What does that mean in her masjid? This is actually one of the narrations that the scholars mention as a proof that a person can build what's like a masjid in their home. Like you have a corner in your home that is like your masjid and that linguistically, even the companions of the Prophet would refer to it as your masjid. And there's something psychological about that as well, right? Having a particular prayer corner, a particular part of the home that's dedicated for a salah, for prayer and for dhikr. And it's not like her house was that big. The hujurat were tiny. But she was in her masjid. So she was in her corner where she would worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. She prayed fajr and she started to do her dhikr. And the Prophet came hours later and she was still sitting in her dhikr, okay? So this is a beautiful testimony to her character and to her dhikr. So the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he sees her that way and he says, You've been in this place the entire time. You never abandoned this position for this entire time. So Juwayriya said, I've been here the entire time. I've just been remembering Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. So the Prophet Sallallahu He's praising that and Rasulullah gives her a gift. He says that I'm going to give you arba'a kalimat, four words that I said three times. Those four words that I am going to teach you, if you compare them to everything that you just said, it will outweigh them. Meaning I'm going to teach you a special zikr that will outweigh all of these hours of your dhikr that you can keep with you. What is that dhikr? Subhanallah wa bihamdihi, adada khalqihi, waridha nafsihi, wa zinata arshihi, wa midada kalimat. Subhanallah wa bihamdihi, adada khalqihi, waridha nafsihi, wa zinata arshihi, wa midada kalimat. Subhanallah wa bihamdihi, adada khalqihi, this dhikr, subhanallah wa bihamdi, where you glorify Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's perfection and you praise Him, in accordance with the number of His creation. How many, how many creations of Allah have existed and will continue to exist? All, just take all of the human beings that exist today. Imagine a dhikr worth 7 billion. Right? But not just today and not just human beings. How many billions and billions and billions of the creation of Allah, that which is observable and that which is not? 
And until Allah is pleased, or in accordance with how much Allah is pleased, does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala have a limit of dhikr or a limit of being praised? Absolutely not. So in accordance with how many creation Allah Azawajal has created, that which you know of and that which you don't know of, according or in amount of what uh, is to his pleasure subhanahu wa ta'ala, wa zina ta'arshihi, and the weight of his throne, Allahu Akbar, like the weight of Allah's throne, wa zina ta'arshihi, wa midada kalimati, and according to the ink that records his praise subhanahu wa ta'ala. What an incredible form of dhikr. And the Prophet ﷺ is saying, say this three times and it's equal to your hours of dhikr, O Juwayriya. And that's a gift to the entire ummah. So this dhikr that you make every morning and every night comes to you through the Prophet ﷺ teaching Juwayriya and this is her most famous and most prominent narration. And here's the amazing thing. How many Muslims say this dhikr morning and evening? Juwayriya gets the reward every single time. Because <laughs> the one who guides to something is the, like the one who does it. The one who teaches a good gets the reward of everyone that acts upon it. So if this was the only hadith that she's ever narrated, how many people have praised Allah with this dhikr after her? And Juwayriya is the means by which that was converted. Our mother taught us this dua, taught us this dhikr. And this is a dhikr that we hold very near and dear to our hearts. And we would uh, be foolish to not act upon it as it was taught to our mother radiyallahu ta'ala anha by the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So this is Juwayriya radiyallahu ta'ala anha. Her life after the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa and during the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa completely avoided fitna, completely avoided conflict. Juwayriya radiyallahu anha did not get involved in anything of conflict. And she lived through all of the major fitan. So she lived through the assassination of Uthman radiallahu ta'ala anhu. She lived through the fitna of the khawarij. She lived through the assassination of Sayyidina Ali radiallahu ta'ala anhu. She lived through all of that. Juwayriya did not get involved in anything of conflict, in anything of fitna, in anything that had to do with the, uh, the, the, the speaking of this group or that group. She was someone that was to herself and she's the embodiment of those who remember Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. وَإِذَا خَاطَبَهُمُ الْجَاهِدُونَ قَالُوا سَلَامًا And ignores all Foolishness. Now, because her, her life is similar to Safiya radiallahu anha, Safiya radiallahu anha, we'll talk about next week, is someone who's going to be scorned frequently or be put down because of her status. Right? At the end of the day, you came into the life of the Prophet as a captive. Right? So, who are you? So, the one, you know, you, you'll notice that anytime Safiya or Juwayriya are put down, they come to the Prophet and he makes them feel better. He puts a positive spin on it. So, you're going to see this frequently in the life of Safiya radiallahu ta'ala anha. So one of the wives of the Prophet sallallahu uh, said to Juwayriya just out of anger that you're nothing but a slave girl, right? So she goes to the Prophet sallallahu and she's hurt by that comment. Rasulullah sallallahu said, but if you think about it, you had the highest mahar, you had the highest dowry because the seven uqiyas that were for your ransom to Thabit were higher than the mahar, were higher than that which was given to any of the wives of the Prophet sallallahu So she left happy, right? Prophet ﷺ found a way to comfort her when she was scorned because, again, she was looked down upon in that regard. She died, radiallahu ta'ala anha, 56 years after the hijrah, after a life of dhikr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Her only narration, subhanAllah, come through Aisha radiallahu anha and through Abdullah ibn Abbas radiallahu anhuma because Abdullah ibn Abbas radiallahu anhuma would go to, again, the companions and ask them about their recollections with the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa 
And she is like all of our mothers, a wife of the Prophet in Jannah. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala be pleased with our mother, Juwayriya, and all of our mothers, the wives of the Prophet and his family and his companions. Allahumma ameen. Jazakumullahu khaira. And inshallah ta'ala, we'll go ahead and take questions. And next week we'll cover Safiya radiallahu anha. So we'll take about five to 10 minutes max, inshallah, of questions, and then we'll break for the Adana Bresha. Any questions? Yeah. Which surah was this revealed? So Surah Al-Munafiqoon, obviously, is, is where you find some of it. Surah Al-Munafiqoon. And also, uh, Surah Al-Tawbah comes later on. It's the most detailed surah about the hypocrites. And Surah Al-Ahzab as well. And Surah Al-Nur, because the slander of Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha. So you have common, a common recurring theme about the munafiqeen, about the hypocrites that continues to come forth. And the Prophet still did not kill him. SubhanAllah, all of this, and the Prophet did not kill him, though the Prophet had every right to because he verbalized at this point his intention to overthrow the Messenger And the Prophet literally talked his son out of killing him uh, because his son wanted to kill him at the border of Al-Madinah. When he got back from Ben Al-Mustalaq, his son was waiting for him to kill him. And the Prophet did not let that happen. Was he eating from sadaqah? Rasulullah did not used to eat from a sadaqah. So this particular narration is one that I have to, I have to look into, inshallah. I'll answer that question next week, actually, inshallah. But the Prophet we know that Rasulullah did not used to eat from sadaqah. That's a good question, inshallah. I don't want to answer it preemptively without going to the sharh, inshallah. I actually saw that section and I didn't have time to go into it in the sharh of the hadith. Jazakallah khair. Uh, one of you first, inshallah. So did Juwayriya accept Islam before or after she married the Prophet ﷺ? The implication is before she married the Prophet ﷺ. She had already embraced Islam. Juwayriya is a, a name that refers to, it's like a little, a, a little girl. So obviously, you know, when, uh, the way that the scholars, and I should have mentioned this actually in the lecture, the way that the linguists describe it is that um, it's referring to the initial beauty that, you know, a woman who doesn't wear off in her beauty because it's referring to her youth. So it's almost like speaking to endless youth. Uh, someone from the brothers, yeah. Well, couldn't the couldn't the Prophet couldn't the Prophet just go to maybe another house of one of his wives and eat something else, or was that just the nature of the Prophet It's a great question. I don't know. <laughs> um, you know, look, the Prophet would go nights with no food. Um, and, you know, subhanAllah, you, you, you see this and it's, it's really profound about our Prophet because sometimes it gives you another layer of ibadah, of his worship, that if a person decides to voluntarily fast because they haven't had anything to eat during the day, then they can just make the niyyah for that to be a day of fasting when it comes to a nawafid. And it was frequent that the Prophet would find nothing to eat and the Prophet would say, in Islam. I'm just going to fast today. What's that? Even? No. No, not on, not on the day of Friday. Because again, the day of Friday would be prohibited. And, and the Prophet mentioned that even if you have to eat from the bark of a tree to break your fast, then you should break your fast if it's a Friday or if it's a Saturday, uh, the days that it's prohibited to fast uh, in isolation. Allah ta'ala. Uh, sister had a question. Yes, go ahead. You had a question, right? Did you get your question answered? Yeah. Oh, you don't have a question anymore. Okay. Any sisters have a question? Yes. 
It shows you, so the question is, you know, look, if a person loves the material things of this world, obviously, and likes to spoil themselves to an extent, how do we reconcile that with these narrations? It shows you that when people came into the presence of the Prophet ﷺ, they didn't want anything of this world anymore. That's the impact that he had on you, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, that if you encountered him, I mean, look at Musab radiallahu ta'ala anhu, right? Look at these companions that came into his presence and basically now just didn't want it anymore, right? Because the Prophet ﷺ had opened their eyes and opened their hearts to something that was far greater than that. So it's something to look at and to admire. And of course, there's no doubt that the more that your appetite for the Akhirah grows, your appetite for this dunya is going to diminish. That's a fact, right? Now, enjoy the halal of this world, but don't be consumed by the halal of this world. You consume the halal of this world, don't be consumed by the halal of this world, right? So we look at these great companions and we take a lesson of how they connected themselves to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the hereafter, despite whatever their circumstances were before uh, they came into Islam. Yeah. Um, Prophet Muhammad sallallahu used to send sahabis to some places to spread the message of Islam and do tablib. How did the sahabas did tablib at that time? How can we, how should we do tablet at this time? And can you give some uh, tips to start and proceed our tablet journey to end up in Jannah, inshallah? All right, so how do you get to Jannah? You watch the Ramadan series. <laughs> uh -huh. So I'll answer the, the last portion uh, first. Uh, the, uh, the other portion. Uh, there's a, a, a wonderful article that's written at Yaqeen called Is Jihad a Conquest Ideology? It's written by Sheikh Abu Alia, Hafidullah Ta'ala from the UK. It's a very powerful academic article where he basically goes through the uh, conditions by which uh, those things took place or before the Prophet some attacked the people, the options that were given, and also, you know, how the Prophet some dealt with non-hostile populations, populations that were not hostile. So the Prophet them said, uh, leave the Turks so long as they leave you, and sim similar narrations. So the idea of not um, infringing upon a population that's not hostile, but still spreading Islam. And so the idea is that the means of Islam or the message of Islam should spread throughout the world unhindered. The da'wah should spread unhindered. And there was a unique way in which the Prophet dealt with every single population, but I'll, I'll recommend the article because it's a powerful article, Is Jihad a Conquest Ideology? that breaks down every single category. Wallahu ta'ala. Inshallah ta'ala, I think, uh, is it Isha time, by the way? Adhan of Isha? No, but Adhan? One minute. Okay, so last question. So there were many like narrations of Aisha anha of her feeling like jealous. So does can jealousy have like a positive connotation to it? You know, um, I think that one of the things that we love about Aisha radiallahu anha, she tells us about how she's feeling, right? She doesn't conceal these things. And that's why I say, subhanAllah, the silliness of those that would try to mock Aisha radiallahu anha with her own narration. She's a mom who's telling you her story of how she felt in these situations. 
So she could have completely left that part out of the narration. But she made it a point to say, فَكَرِهْتُهَا I hated her. There's absolutely no way around that. Right? However, what you learn is that Aisha did not wrong her. She didn't do dhulm towards her. But she mentions the times that she lost her temper or that, that jealousy overtook her. So it's not praiseworthy that Aisha for example, broke the plate of one of the wives of the Prophet and walked off. But what did the Prophet say? غَارَتْ أُمُّكُمْ Your mother became jealous. So the Prophet praised her sense of protectiveness, but not the action. The way she acted upon that jealousy in that moment was not praiseworthy. Yet the Prophet was still praising that, that, that sense of, of, uh, of jealousy that she had towards her husband in that regard. So it's part of what makes Aisha anha so special is that she's very open about how she felt um, you know, in these situations. But she also, look, in this narration, she praises Juwayriya at the same time. SubhanAllah. So after saying she hates her, she says she's the greatest barakah to her people that ever existed. In the same narration, it's literally four sentences down. After saying karihtuha, I don't know of a woman of greater barakah to her people than this woman Juwayriya. And you'll find that frequently from Aisha anha. So she doesn't say anything bad about the Prophet She doesn't say anything bad about Juwayriya. She simply says that that was my emotion when I saw her because I looked at her and I said, you know, why are you at my house? You know, basically. We'll go ahead and stop for Adhan and Aisha, inshallah. Subhanallah. This podcast was brought to you by Yaqeen Institute for Islamic Research, dismantling doubts and nurturing conviction, one truth at a time. Tune in every week for the next episode, and don't forget to subscribe to this channel and share with friends. Until next time, this has been The Firsts, The Forerunners of Islam.